3: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything.
4: School of Humans. In the winter of 2011, something was very wrong with 57-year-old Robert Wayne Cox. Robert had always been healthy and athletic. According to his sister, Lydia, Robert was basically happiest when he was at home. He lived on a 35-acre plot of land in Havana, Arkansas, a tiny town where the population hovers between three and 400 people. Robert was a homebody. He loved hanging out with his family. And also, according to his sister, he loved messing around with old cars, restoring them, and doing construction projects. He actually helped build the log cabin that was on his property. He was very proud of that accomplishment. Robert was happily married. He had been with his wife, Vicky for over 20 years. She had two children. Robert also had a son named Brian from a previous marriage. Robert's father, Gene, lived in a home he had built on the property back in 2006. And his sister, Lydia, lived just down the road. For a long time, Robert Cox had a very happy and settled life. But in 2010, something started happening to Robert Cox. There was a very rapid physical deterioration, and by the fall of 2010, Robert couldn't really walk. His chin dropped down to his chest. He became completely nonverbal. His sister Lydia was terrified by what was happening to her brother. She took him to doctor after doctor trying to find answers. Then on February 19th, 2011, Robert Wayne Cox disappeared without a trace he has never been seen again. I'm Katherine Townsend. This is Hell and Gone Murder Line. If you have a case you'd like me and my team to look into, you can reach out to us at our Hell and Gone Murder Line at 678-744-6145. That's 678-744-6145. When we asked for people to reach out and to leave voicemails about unsolved murders, I knew that we would get a big response. I didn't quite understand how tremendous the response would be. I got seven voicemails about Robert Cox's case. Seven different people reached out to me, either on our murder line or on my personal number or via Facebook to tell me about this missing persons case. There are so many people. In Arkansas and everywhere around the country, who care deeply about this case. One of those calls came from Robert Cox's sister, Lydia Cox Carter.
3: Hello, my name is Lydia Cox Carter. My brother has been missing, possibly murdered, for the last 12 and a half years. I have struggled with law enforcement like nobody's business. Uh, There has never been a proper investigation done. I believe there is family involvement with the wife, his own son, and stepkids. Um, he was on hospice at the time of his supposed disappearance. We are in Havana, Arkansas, which is Yale County. And the new sheriff that we have now that come into office this year, he has opened up my brother's case to outside agencies.
4: Over the years, Lydia has been her brother's biggest champion and she has fought ever since the day he disappeared to get answers and to figure out what happened to her brother. Robert Wayne Cox was born and raised in California. In 1987, he moved to Arkansas. He went to work for the county road department and became a road foreman, a job he would have for the next 15 years. Robert married and he and his first wife had a son named Brian. Eventually, the couple divorced, and apparently it was acrimonious. In fact, according to Lydia, Robert's ex-wife hated him after the divorce. But Lydia said that Robert always maintained a close relationship with his son, Brian. After the road foreman job, Robert started working for a close friend of his. This involved working with heavy equipment, helping with cattle, and doing rural projects. Clearing trees for logging, that kind of thing. This suited Robert because he loved working outdoors. In the early 90s, Robert married again to Vicky. Lydia moved back to the area in 1995 and she and Vicki became close friends. Here's Lydia.
3: Me and her were like best friends from the get-go. Yeah, she was funny. She had a great sense of humor. She, she fit in with our family. She thought the sun rose and set on Robert Cox. She was always with him every opportunity at that time. And yeah, we used to go grocery shopping together, yard selling. we drive to Kentucky to go see her, her daughter and her little granddaughter. I mean, we just, we did everything together.
4: Vicki had two kids. Lydia said that they were all close. The two sons went to high school together. They were tight even after the boys grew up and moved out of the house. Vicki worked as a supervisor for Levi. Later, she began working as a hairdresser. In 2006, Robert helped his father, Gene, build a home on the property. For a long time, Robert's life was great. He had a happy marriage, a happy blended family, and he was able to work outside doing what he loved. But things started to change in 2008. There was a global recession, so Robert's friend had to let Robert go. By now, Robert was in his mid-50s, he found himself out of work and at a loose end. This hit Robert hard. Lydia said this was the beginning of his depression. His mental health started to deteriorate. Now, around this time, Robert also started to fixate more on Vicky. He began to suspect that Vicky was being unfaithful. At first, Lydia said she thought Robert was being paranoid. She could not imagine Vicky betraying her brother
3: toward the end of 2009, he started in saying, telling me, you know, that he felt like Vicky was messing around on him. He'd been following her and stuff. And I told him, I said, you're crazy. She ain't messing around on you. And he's like, yeah, she is, yeah, she is. At that point in time, I just never believed that she was doing something like that. Now, whether she was or not, I don't know.
4: When Vicki took a cruise with her family, Robert's extreme anxiety increased. Vicky would leave the house Robert would wonder where she was and who she was with. sometimes Robert would get into his truck and follow Vicky throughout 2010 things kept getting worse.
3: He got very I guess you could say kind of clingy with her mm-hmm. and then he started driving back and forth see we live almost 30 miles from here to Russellville where she was working and he'd drive over there sometimes two, three, four times a day just to make sure she was at work because he just knew Mm. that she was messing around on him. So there was also something, you know, I guess mental going on. I don't
4: know. Later in 2010, as things were continuing to escalate, that's when the physical symptoms started. Lydia and her dad drove Robert to different doctors. They put him on several different medications, Zoloft first and then some other drugs, but he was experiencing some negative side effects from the medication.
3: I believe it was Zoloft. And when he was on that, he started hallucinating. Mm. He'd look out into the field and he'd say, you see that bear or that lion down there or something like that. And then at one point he got to where they had him on a Mm -hmm. psychiatric drug. And uh, he would think that he would see my mom, or our, my, our mom's deceased and our oldest brother is deceased, he would think that he would see them down in my dad's vehicle, sitting in the vehicle. Mm-hmm. So he would take like a blanket or a jacket or a bowl of soup or something down there because he thought he was seeing them sitting in there.
4: The doctors took him off the drugs and his hallucinations went away. But his paranoia remained. Lydia was frustrated. She thought that Vicky didn't seem to be worried enough about Robert's rapid physical and mental deterioration. Lydia said she wanted her brother to go to the doctor to be tested for dementia. He did see a couple of different doctors. One doctor said it was possible that Robert could have frontal lobe damage, but the doctor said they needed to get a PET scan in order to get a more definite diagnosis. But there was a hitch. Robert didn't have health insurance because he had been out of work for so long. And that PET scan would cost $4,000. Gene, Robert's father, said that he would pay for the treatment, but Vicki refused. Even when Lydia claims she told her sister-in-law that Vicky would not have to pay Gene back, she claims that Vicky just said no. Testing for dementia was scheduled, but Robert never made it to the appointment. At this point, Robert was also experiencing a lot of physical problems. I saw a home video that Lydia shared with a local news station, and it really gives an idea of how difficult it was for Robert to move around. We're gonna provide a link to that video in our episode notes, and I really recommend that you check it out because within a few months, this man went from being a vital 50-something active guy who was in shape to literally shuffling, barely moving forward. He looked like a 90-year-old man walking around. The difference is extremely dramatic.
3: The last time that he was actually verbal was on his birthday, which is September 28th of 2010. After that, it was just downhill. After that, he was having trouble swallowing, like eating whole foods and stuff like that. So I started making his food my dad went and bought, you know, insurance stuff. And by Thanksgiving of 2010, the head was dropping. And by Christmas of 2010, his chin was resting on his
4: chest. By December of 2010, tensions were continuing to mount between Vicki and Lydia. Then, one day, Lydia got a Facebook message that she said stopped her cold.
3: One night toward the end of December, Vicki sent me a Facebook message, told me that, you know, that she had talked to the kids and Brian's wife, Rebecca, sent Vicki a Facebook message and then Vicki shared it with me. And Rebecca said, we'll go along with whatever y'all want to do. But Robert told Brian that if he ever got sick like his mom, He'd want Brian to kill him. So I immediately printed that off. I don't know why I did, but thank God that I did. And i come back at Vicki and I said, who would even talk or be thinking about that in a time like this? And she's like, I know. She said, I don't know what I would do without you if I didn't have you helping me. Because, you know, Brian, once his dad started getting sick, he just quit coming around as much and stuff. And him and his dad was pretty tight. And then after when all this took place, Brian come out and he seen him a couple of times out in a pasture across the road from his dad's house. And then after that, him and his wife just kind of disappeared. And everybody was asking me, my husband and other neighbors like, where's Brian? Where's Brian? Why ain't Brian out there? Because nobody's
4: seen Brian again. Hey, y'all! It's Catherine. As you know from Helen Gone, crime can happen to anyone at any time. When it comes to home security, your best line of defense is your diligence and preparation. That's why I recommend Simply Safe Home Security. Obviously, we cannot control everything that happens out there in the world, but when I'm in my own home, I feel very reassured by the fact that. I have a home security system, and SimpliSafe is affordable, easy to use, and crucially, it's easy to get started with and then build on later as you need more functionality. They have a huge variety of indoor and outdoor cameras. It's backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day with no contracts and a 60-day money-back guarantee. Get 20% off any new SimpliSafe system when you sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com slash Helen Gone. That's simplysafe.com slash Gone. There's no safe like Simply Safe. We're coming up to the day when Robert Cox went missing, in February of 2011. But first, I want to take a step back here and talk about this property that Robert and Vicki lived on, because understanding that terrain is crucial to figuring out what happened to Robert Cox. Robert and Vicky's home was on a 35-acre piece of land. Robert's father, Gene, had a small house on that property, on a three-acre plot. Lydia lived just about a mile away. There were a couple of neighbors between them. The entire area around Robert Cox's house was bordered with something called clear-cut.
3: I don't know if you know what a clear-cut is, but they'll plant like a a pine thicket. Mm -hmm. And they let them trees grow for about 15, 20 years, and then they'll come in and they'll clear-cut it. Mm -hmm. And they take the biggest part of the tree, and then they delimit. So, when a clear cut is done being cut, it is very, very rough ground. Mm -hmm. And there is treetops, branches, you know, big holes where where they pull the trees out of the ground and all that stuff. I mean, it's just a big mess.
4: In his weakened state, Lydia explained there was no way that Robert could have navigated that property by himself because he would be in danger of falling. Also, Lydia said by the time her brother disappeared, he was not going out by himself. Going out by himself would have been completely out of character, it would have been very dangerous for him. The last time that Lydia saw her brother was on Wednesday night, February 16th. On that evening, Vicky brought Robert by Lydia's house. Lydia said the next couple of days were pretty busy. Her dad, Jean, saw Robert, but she didn't see him on Thursday or Friday. She and her husband were getting ready to have company, and so she was getting the house ready and just taking care of a lot of things. So now we come to that fateful day. Saturday, February 19th, 2011. The day that Robert went missing. Lydia took us through her memories of that day. A day she says she relives over and over. Her day started at around 830 she called her dad, Jean to ask if he had had breakfast yet. Jean told her that he was planning on driving to Choctaw, a nearby town. He was taking a drive to pick up some wagon wheels that he had left there to be repaired. This was Lydia's regular routine, by the way. She often went to her brother's house at least once a day, sometimes multiple times in order to check on her elderly father and her brother. Lydia told Jean he needed to have something to eat. So at around 8.30, her dad stopped at her house to have a quick breakfast. Then he left to run his errand. Lydia spent the rest of the morning cleaning her house, taking care of chores. She was getting ready to have company. Then at 12.30, Lydia said she realized that she hadn't checked in on her brother yet. So she called her brother's house and Vicki answered the phone.
3: So it was exactly 12.32 p.m. when I made the call up there. She answered the phone. And I said, what are y'all doing? She said, well, Angie's painting my toenails and doing laundry. And she said, Shelby, the granddaughter, was doing something. She may have been outside riding a four-wheeler or something. I don't know. I don't remember. And then I said, well, what's brother doing? She said, well, I don't know. She said, he was in here pulling on my arm, but he's been gone for about 10 minutes. And I said, well, don't you think you need to send somebody outside to make sure he's okay? Because I wasn't worried about him wandering off because he was very homebody. He was either in and out of his house or walking from his house to my dad's house. And uh, so she told Shelby, the granddaughter, she said, go outside and see if you see your papa. I heard her go out the door, heard her stand on the porch, called papa papa a few times come back in. She says, no, I don't see him. Vicki said, well, when my toenails dry, she said, I'll slip my shoes on and I'll go outside and see where he's at. And I said, no, you get off your ass now and you go outside and see where he's at. She said, okay, okay. And I said, keep me on the phone. They supposedly went outside, looked around the yard. She's like, I don't see him anywhere. I'm telling her places to look. And I said, make sure he's not in the garage. Make sure he's not in the storage shed. And then next to his garage, there was a gap. And I said, well, go in that gap and make sure he's not behind one of those buildings. She supposedly did that. And she said, oh, yeah, I see him. He's almost to the road. I'm going to go get my keys and get my car out of the garage and go up on the road and pick him up so we hung up i went running out to the shop where my husband was working told him what was going on and i told him i said i swear to god she's gonna wind up killing my brother or losing him and i said i'm fixing to whip out that power of attorney and take him away from her and bring him down here and he's like well whatever you want to do we'll do it so i come back in the house i start doing my chores again because I'm thinking everything's okay. Mm -hmm. So about 30 minutes later I hear my cell phone telling me I had a voicemail. So I pick up the voicemail. She says, well, we can't find Rob and hung up. That's all she said. So I go running out back out to the shop. I told my husband, I said, Apparently, they've lost him. Get on your quad, head that way. I'm going to get my horse. I'll be there as quick as I can.
4: Lydia jumped on her horse and rode toward Robert's house as fast as she could. Her husband jumped on his quad bike. It had rained recently in the area, so that ground was saturated. Lydia said that her horse was getting bogged down in that mud. So the area, which was tough to navigate on the best of days, became almost impossible. Lydia saw a neighbor, Bob, approaching from the north side of the clear-cut. Lydia talked to Bob and found out that Vicky had been to Bob's house. Now, it's unclear whether she actually talked to Bob. Lydia says she believes that Vicky went to the house, didn't see him, and then called and left him a message. Anyway, somehow Bob got the message. So by the time Lydia got to Robert's house, several people were already there looking for him. Bob, another neighbor named Don, Angela, her daughter Shelby, and Vicky, plus the local mail carrier. By that night, there were over 100 volunteers scouring the woods looking for Robert, literally more than a third of the town. A friend who had a private plane went up in the air and flew around all afternoon. He found no sign of Robert. Lydia said law enforcement showed up, and from the beginning, her relationship with the Yale County Sheriff's Department was pretty strained. She said the local sheriff's department was really unprepared for a missing persons case like this. Lydia admits she was frustrated by some of their decisions, like the fact that they set up their command post a quarter of a mile away. Lydia wanted to know why they weren't setting it up closer to home, and why they weren't questioning Robert's family members. Already, Lydia was questioning aspects of Vicky's story. First of all, she wondered, how could her brother, who had difficulty walking a few steps, somehow walk hundreds of yards to the edge of that clear cut and disappear within just a few minutes. Secondly, Lydia thought it was strange that Vicky went to see a neighbor, but that it was the neighbor's son who actually called the police. Her brother was vulnerable. Why hadn't Vicky called 911? Then Lydia noticed something else. When she was talking to their neighbor, Don, Don was describing his attempt to recreate the scene with Vicky. Don asked Vicky exactly where she was standing when she was talking to Lydia on the phone and where Robert was standing. Lydia said that from where Vicky said she was talking on the phone, she could not have seen Robert through the dense brush. So when my neighbor
3: Don first got up there, he was the first one there. And he asked her, he said, Show me exactly where you last seen Rob. And she took him down there and showed him and said, Right here. And he said when he got down there, there were no footprints whatsoever. And then when my neighbor Bob come riding up on his horse, he come right along that edge there next to my brother's property where she claimed she had seen him. And Bob yelled from in the clear cut up to the road, who's got stars on the bottom of their shoes? She says, I do. She had on a pair of shoes that apparently had stars on the bottom of them.
4: Remember, it had rain recently, which means that anyone walking out there would presumably leave fairly deep footprints. Yet the only footprints the neighbor found in that area, according to Lydia, were Vicky's. I asked Lydia if law enforcement took pictures of those footprints. Her response was telling. Who, law enforcement? Yeah.
3: <laughs> they ain't done nothing. <sighs> no, ma'am, they did not. No.
4: I don't even know if law enforcement was even in that clear cut. The Yale County Sheriff's Department kept searching. The state police came in at around 10 p.m. that night. They brought bloodhounds and volunteers, and they did search everywhere. They went through fields, barns, cars, abandoned wells, sinkholes, and anywhere else they could think of. But they found no trace of Robert. But the dogs did alert on the property dog handler come
3: in and she said well my dog tracked him north along the edge of the clear cut and then out east part way across the clear cut I told her I said there ain't no way then she said they tracked him you know out in the yard and then up the driveway to the end of the driveway and then the dog lost scent. so then that's when the theory come in well somebody must have drove by and picked him up
4: This seemed far-fetched to Lydia. Lydia said that a strange car going unnoticed would have been very strange in their neighborhood. This was a place where everyone knew everyone. They knew when the trash truck came in and when it left. So the idea that someone could have driven by and picked Robert up at that exact time of day during a five-minute period is very implausible. Also, if they did, what would their motive have been? When he disappeared, Robert had nothing on him, no wallet, no medication. What would their motive be for picking up and kidnapping an elderly man in the middle of the afternoon? Lydia said that at some point, someone told her that the first search dogs had been tired, so she called the sheriff at the time, Sheriff Gilkey. She said she would like to get fresher search dogs out there, and she said he cussed her out. But the sheriff did relent and agreed to send more dogs. When the second group of dogs came to the area, they alerted in only one place, the front door. Vicki told law enforcement that when Robert left the house that day, he was wearing gray tennis shoes, gray sweatpants, and a navy blue hoodie. To Lydia, the clothing description was also a bit strange.
3: My brother dressed Western, boots, jeans, Flannel shirts, T-shirts, you know, very simple
4: and plain. So a hoodie would have been a little out of character.
3: Very much out of character. I mean, I never seen him wear a hoodie, even when he was, you know, sick. I mean, she was still putting his T-shirts on and then putting a flannel on,
4: you know, over the T-shirts like he always did. I don't know where the blue hoodie come from. Could someone else have been walking around in a hoodie? someone who wanted to create the description that way in case they were spotted from a distance, Lydia's mind came up with many possibilities, but all of them in her imagination ended with someone doing something unspeakable to her brother.
3: I got to the point to where I was following vultures. You know, I'd see them circling out in the pasture and I'd follow him and I'd get out and I'd go look just to make sure because you don't know. At that point, it was hard for me to wrap my mind around that somebody in my family could hurt my brother. Mm-hmm. But it was kind of looking pretty iffy yeah. <laughs> that somebody
4: very well could have done something to him. But her conversations with law enforcement continue to be frustrating. Since according to her, they did not seem to consider the possibility of Robert being the victim of foul play
3: why ain't you setting up in his yard and questioning family? Well, cause that's right. the last ones that supposedly seen him, but they didn't. And they just kept coming up to me and asking me different questions and about my brother. And I'm like, you don't understand. I said, he ain't able to navigate this. The man's chin was resting on his chest. He was on hospice and you know, where's he going to go? He walked With a shuffled gait, he's not gonna disappear in five minutes. And that's what she set the timeline at was five minutes.
4: Lydia was also wondering where her brother's son Brian was, why he wasn't on social media posting, why he wasn't, in her opinion, helping more with the search. Eventually she admits she suspected multiple people in the family may have been aware, at least, of what was going on. She said that she really noticed that Vicky did not appear to be that concerned about Robert.
3: She was out there talking and laughing with them and carrying on. I don't know who it was. Could have been somebody in her family. I don't know because a bunch of her family come out, started mm-hmm. flowing in after that. Another person told me that she was outside in the yard and there was people up there, you know, looking all around the yard and around the house and everything. And she's like, there's plenty of food and drink in here. If you guys get hungry, thirsty, come on in, get you whatever you want, whatever, and stuff like that. And just... You know, nobody ever seen the woman shed a tear. I never seen her shed a tear.
4: Also on Sunday, Lydia got another shock. When she went to her brother's house, she found hospice nurses there, taking her brother's things away. Robert had been missing less than 24 hours.
3: Sunday morning, she had hospice out there and had them come and pick up everything. The hospital bed, the bedside commode and you know just whatever they brought out because she said he wasn't coming back
2: at purdueglobal.edu.
4: After Lydia saw the nurses taking Robert's things out of his home only 24 hours after he had gone missing, she said the relationship between her and Vicky deteriorated fast. Lydia had thought of Vicky as a sister, but Lydia says they have not spoken since March of 2011, just a few weeks after her brother went missing. Lydia also wondered about Brian, her suspicion started on Saturday night when she asked Vicki about why Brian and his wife were not out late searching for Robert.
3: I seen her about 10 o'clock and she said, well, I finally heard from Brian. And I said, and? She said, well, they got uh, wet and tired. So they went home and took a shower and went to bed. And I said, so your dad is missing and he's a sick human being and you're wet and tired and you're going to go to bed.
4: Lydia could not wrap her head around this. She had always known Brian and her brother Robert to have a very close relationship. She couldn't understand why, in her opinion, Brian didn't seem to be more proactive about searching for his father. However, as time went on, she kept thinking back to that weird Facebook message, the one about a mercy killing. She wondered, could Brian have known something about what happened to his father? Lydia says that after that, her relationship with Brian also completely fell apart.
3: That following Monday, Brian was off work that day. So I had gone up to Vicki's, to my brother's house, to take care of the dogs. She had some goats at that time, and some chickens. So I went up there to take care of them chores for her. And when I come back around the front of the house Brian and his wife was there and Brian had my brother's uh, quad in the yard and he was bent over working on it and I was talking to Becca I don't remember what we were saying but anyways I'm sure something about what was going on Brian never turned around and looked at me and I told him I said Brian I said you know there's something wrong with this story right I said you know there is no way Your dad could have walked out in that clear cut and disappeared. He said, well, we got to go. He says, I got to go to my friends. I don't remember why, but they loaded up and left and they ain't laid eyes on that kid since.
4: Later, her father, Gene, went to Danville, where Brian was working as a mechanic and tried to talk to him. He also got the silent treatment.
3: After this all happened, my dad started going down there trying to talk to Brian because my dad had a good relationship with Brian, too. Mm -hmm. And Brian wouldn't look at my dad. He wouldn't talk to my dad. He would just look through him or look beside him or drop his head and just turn and walk away. So one day he cornered him down there and he said, Brian, he said, I don't know who did it. He said, but somebody hurt my boy. And he says, and I'm going to find out who it is.
4: Then Lydia said "Vicky started replacing furniture in the back bedroom where her brother had been sleeping.
3: That weekend, after this whole mysterious disappearance thing, Vicki's replacing bedroom furniture in the back bedroom. She even called me down there and told me to come look at it after they got done with it. She said, oh, come and look at the furniture I got from my brother. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm not saying anything, but I'm thinking to myself, why are you worried about changing out furniture when your husband's missing? And then there was some stuff back there. I don't know what they was burning. I don't know if it's furniture or or what. So I don't know, just, just too many red flags for me. And, you know, law enforcement didn't seem to think that some of that stuff wasn't pertinent. I don't know.
4: Lydia began to believe that her brother never made it past the front door and that something had happened to him inside the house. After a few days, the searches stopped. The case went cold and it became just part of local legend, the guy who lived there but disappeared one day. But Lydia and her father could not forget. A few months after Robert's disappearance, they hired a private investigator named Donnie. Donnie eventually built up a huge case file. And one of the first mysteries that Donnie helped solve was why he believes the search dogs alerted out near the clear cut.
3: There's a lot of things I wouldn't know if it hadn't been for the private investigator that come in in June of 2011. What I found out about the dogs, the state police dogs saying they tracked him, you know, along the edge of the clear cut and out east. And the reason they tracked him along the outside edge of the yard next to the county road and out to the driveway is because th- that night when this all took place, or that day when this all took place, Angela was wearing my brother's house shoes and yeah, the granddaughter sense. had on my brother's muck boots. So that's why the dogs tracked where they tracked, because those kids had my brother's shoe on.
4: This would seem to be a major discovery, because presumably... The police based their theory that Robert could have been picked up at that road edge, largely on where those first dogs alerted. Did he talk to them? Did he talk to Angela and the granddaughter?
3: Yes, and there's conflicting statements with (laughs) Angie and Vicki because Angie's statement says there's no way Robert could have been in that clear cut and there's no way he could have made it out of the clear cut up onto the county road. And she's correct. Because it was wet, muddy, and slick, and it's a four-foot incline from coming out of the clear-cut up to the county road. But yet her mother says he was in the clear-cut and disappeared within five minutes, and there's nowhere to go.
4: Donnie, the PI, discovered something else, something else he says the police missed. He said the police never asked Vicki about insurance policies that she had on her husband. Lydia explained that Vicki had a life insurance policy on Robert and that she found out later Vicky had made some changes.
3: As a little bit of time goes on, he asked her, he said, did the police, state police or the sheriff ever ask you if you had any kind of life insurance policies, burial policies or anything like that? And she said, no. He said, well... He said do you have any insurance policies and she said yeah I have a burial policy and an accident policy and he said well I'll need copies of those he said that way if something comes up I'll be mm-hmm. able to help you out mm-hmm. with it she said well I kind of might have messed up and he said what do you mean she said well that accident policy she said I increased it after Robert disappeared so what it was is it was a Accident policy, like you get from banks, if you lose a limb or eye or something, or you get accidentally killed. So what she did was, is it was at fifty thousand, and she increased it to two hundred or two hundred and fifty thousand, mm. and then she made her son Carl the beneficiary on that policy.
4: Her not son, Brian. Yeah.
3: Yes, her son, not yeah. Brian, her son. So that's a big red flag. Why would you increase a policy after your husband
4: disappears? In August of 2011, Lydia said Vicki got rid of the rest of her brother's clothes. That was also around the time when Vicky took off her wedding ring. The following year, Vicki was moving on. Vicki met George Keith. Vicki and George started dating. They wanted to get married, but there was one problem. Robert had not been legally declared dead. And Lydia still had her brother's power of attorney, which he had given her in 2009. In July of 2012, Vicky petitioned the court to have Robert declared dead, which they did. After Robert was legally declared dead in 2013, Vicki and George were married. I want to point out, and this is really important. Over the years, Lydia and Vicki have obviously clashed. At one point, Lydia was talking to local reporters and went to the property. Vicky told the reporters to get off her property. Now, I'm sure that Vicky has a completely different story to tell. I'm sure there's a whole nother side to that story. I have reached out to her for comment, and she has not replied. I've also reached out to Brian. I would love to talk to them because I really do believe that it's only by piecing everything together we're going to be able to find out what happened to Robert Cox. Vicki has never been named as a suspect. She did pass a lie detector test. She's never been charged with anything and never, to my knowledge, been a suspect in her husband's disappearance. Over the years, Lydia and Vicki went to court several times. The judge mainly sided with Vicky. Vicky ended up with Robert's property. But Robert's father, Gene, was allowed to live in his house for the rest of his life. Now, I can only imagine the tension that must have been present at that property, because can you imagine living on the property with your former father-in-law, the father-in-law who suspects that you have killed his son and having to see him every day? I cannot imagine what that must have been like for any of those people. Over the years, Lydia reached out to everyone she could think of. She called the attorney general. She posted on social media. She called the FBI and true crime shows, including Nancy Grace. Anyone who could help her get answers.
3: And I said, and believe me, I am not here to make enemies with you guys, but it's not your loved one. It's not in your backyard. I said, it's mine. I said, when you lay your head on your pillow at night, you know where your people are. You know where your family is. I said, I know where most of mine are, living or dead, I know where they are. I said, but Robert Cox, I have no clue. And I said, and Robert Cox, you got five suspects that are just running amok and not one person has ever, ever brought them in and investigated, interrogated. I said, nothing. In
4: 2015, Lydia talked to a local Fox news station, This time, it was a two-part special. The reporter went out to the property and climbed through the clear-cut, and you can really see what hard and rough terrain that is and how hard it would have been for an elderly man with all these physical challenges to navigate it. At the time, Robert's father, Gene, told the reporter he thought of his missing son every single day. He said, quote, I get up at night and I go out and look. He comes to me in my dreams, end quote. Eventually, Lydia got a meeting with the prosecutor. She said she was underwhelmed by his response. When I was talking to Lydia about her meeting with the prosecutor, I had to ask her about something I heard her say to another media outlet. She said the prosecutor told her that unless they had a body and a confession, that they couldn't prosecute. I thought I misheard or maybe she misspoke because to me that was unbelievable. But she said that's exactly what happened. So we just sat there
3: and we started asking questions. Of the private detective was there and, we, and I had my state rep and then a rep, uh, an attorney from the attorney general's office there. And then he's like, well, there's nothing I can do for you. He says, you'll have to go over to the sheriff's office and hash it out with them.
4: At that point, law enforcement did take action. They took Lydia and her dad in and they separately questioned them. They gave Lydia a lie detector test, which she passed. Again, I should mention, Vicki did eventually take a polygraph test. Lydia said that she talked to Vicky after Vicky took the test and that Vicki was talking about taking Xanax. So Lydia believes that the Xanax that Vicky took could have influenced the test, but it's important to mention that she did pass the polygraph. The police department considers this an open investigation, so they aren't revealing any details. In 2023, a new sheriff took over. He said he was going to have an open door policy. Lydia said she has a good relationship with the new sheriff and that the new sheriff has said that he would open the case back up and be open to outside help. And I just want to say to the Yale County Sheriff's Department and to the Arkansas State Police, if you do want my help in any way, I would be more than happy to put time and work into this case if you're willing to share any part of the case file. Eventually, Vicki sold the house where she'd been living with Robert, the one that he built with his bare hands. She and her new husband moved to Russellville. For years, Robert's former house sat there, empty. The house was sold to someone in another state, and now it's rented out as an Airbnb. Gene passed away, and tragically, he died never knowing what happened to his son. After he died, Vicky's daughter Angela and her husband moved into Gene's former home. And meanwhile, Lydia still lives in the same house, near her brother's property. So she has to drive by the place where her brother disappeared and look at some of the people who she believes may have had a part in it, or at least know what happened, every single day. According to the Yale County Sheriff's Department, the case is still active. They told Fox News back in 2015, quote, We wish that we could share more information. But since this is a complex, active investigation into an incident which occurred under suspicious circumstances, we have to consider all possibilities and maintain the integrity of the investigation. End quote. So what really happened to Robert Cox? I agree with Lydia. I think it's incredibly unlikely, if not impossible, that he was out walking randomly by himself and was kidnapped in broad daylight, completely disappeared in a five minute space of time. Over the years, Lydia's mind has gone to dark places. She's had to consider every single possibility. She's wondered about Robert's physical deterioration, how fast it all happened. She wondered if that was a coincidence, or could her brother have been poisoned? Lydia told The Missing Podcast she did wonder at one point about Vicky's habit of giving her brother insure milkshakes, and when Vicky gave him the shakes, Lydia said she would put a lot of extra chocolate syrup in the drinks. She said when she made Robert shakes, he never needed that extra chocolate, so she kind of wondered why Vicky did that. Then again, Lydia was the one making a lot of Robert's food. And even before the physical deterioration, he was clearly having issues, physical and psychological. There's one more area that Lydia believes needs to be searched more thoroughly. When Vicky sold the property, she kept the three acre patch of land with Gene's house on it in the family. Lydia wonders if her brother is somewhere on that property, somewhere close to home. To this day, she believes he never made it off of that property alive. I'm Katherine Townsend. This is Helen Gone, Murder Line. Hell and Gone, Murder Line is a production of School of Humans and iHeart Podcasts. It's written and narrated by me, Catherine Townsend, and produced by Gabby Watts. Music contributed by Ben Salee. And this episode was scored and mixed by Miranda Hawkins. Executive producers are Virginia Prescott, Brandon Barr, and LC Crowley. If you have a case you'd like me and my team to look into, you can reach out to us at our Hell and Gone Murder Line at 678-744-6145. That's 678-744-6145. Please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts.
2: School of Humans
1: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is
2: going on a road trip. I thought in that moment Oh, my God, we've summoned something from this board. This
1: is Uncanny USA.
4: He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed.
1: (laughs) Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. The journey to a smoke-free future can be a long and winding road.